pray that you would challenge us in your word this morning. And that in your word, you would be glorified, God. We thank you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, yes, thank you for being here this morning. It is good to have you guys here. The last time that we were together, we were looking at the, the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that? Which we learned was probably more like ten to 20,000 when you include the, the women and children. In our last sermon, we, we saw four different scenarios or four different scenes. We saw, number one, we saw the selfish crowd who was coming to Jesus because they had seen the signs that he was performing on the sick. They came to get a miracle. Jesus knew why they had come to him, and he knows why everyone comes to him. He knows whom he has drawn, and he knows whom are his or who are his. That was the first scene. The second scene we saw was the, the faithless disciples. Now, as the crowds are, are gathering and, and swelling, it became late in the day, and Jesus is concerned about people eating. So he turns to his disciples as this massive crowd is, is beginning to swell, and he tells them, get the people something to eat. Their response is, it is impossible to feed this many people, even if we had eight months wages. People would not be able to get even a bite to eat with that much money. They are faithless in the face of Christ. Jesus then performs a miracle. And as we said last time, it is beyond our comprehension that if we were not talking about God in the flesh, then we would have a hard time believing this miracle. Amen. So he blesses God. And I'll tell you that that when I talk just that moment about blessing God, not blessing the food. It messed me up when I pray for my my food now. Didn't it mess you up? Okay, well, it messed me up. And now I'm like, okay, bless God. No, not the food, just God. He blesses God and he multiplies the food. He blesses God and he multiplies the food and thousands are fed. This miracle was meant to point to Christ. It was meant to point to his deity. It was meant to point to not the miracle. The miracle was meant to point to Christ. The people recognized the third scene. The people recognized that. This was a miracle. This was a a great sign. And they want to make Jesus their king. But not because they want Jesus. Because they want full stomachs. Jesus knowing all men. Jesus Jesus knowing all the hearts of men. He retreats. Because they didn't want him to be the savior of their souls. They wanted him to be the filler of of their stomachs. As we move forward into this chapter, we're going to see a, a reoccurring theme. It begins in the beginning and it continues throughout the entire chapter. And this theme, if you study, and it's important that when you study, you look for themes. Look for themes in that chapter. What's the reoccurring theme going on here? And in this chapter, we are going to see that Christ is, number one, putting himself on display. And as a result of him putting himself on display, he is weeding out true and false disciples. All throughout the chapter, Christ puts himself on display True and false disciples show up. So let's stand as we read these verses for today. Verse 16, and we're only going to do to 21 today. I'm sorry, I know I said I was going to go further, but I'm not going to be able to. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. That is going to be the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. Got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus... Wait, where is that? Ah, And Jesus had not yet come to them. Verse 18. 
the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were terrified or frightened. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. As I said before, this this entire chapter is displaying for us disciples, true and false disciples. Let me ask you a question. Just don't answer it, but think about it in your mind. What is a disciple? Think about that for a second. What does the word mean? We've heard that word so many times and and we automatically identify it with the 12 disciples that follow Jesus. But did you know that there were more than 12 disciples following Jesus? So what does the word mean? As a matter of fact, a disciple was not something uncommon in Jesus' day. People had disciples all the time. Teachers would, would walk around and there would be students following them, listening to their teachings as they walked and talked. A disciple was merely that, a student. They were followers of the teachings of a certain teacher. John the Baptist had disciples. And many of the Pharisees also, they had disciples. Again, they were students that would follow their teachings and follow their, their, their teacher wherever they went. Disciples are not a special class of Christians. This is important for you to know. That God has chosen among other Christians to be the special elite. Disciples are merely students. And as we look through the scriptures, we see that the word disciple becomes a synonym or another word for believer. Now, many called themselves disciples, but they were not true disciples of Christ because when Jesus began to teach difficult things, they went away. In the same way, those people who call themselves true believers are not really true believers. This is a sad reality, but in many churches across the world, there are people who are sitting in churches calling themselves disciples or believers, followers of Christ, and they are not. And the harder truth is this, that people do not like when you question whether or not they are true or false disciples. Because everyone wants to believe that they are right in their own eyes. There's a landmark in uh, Oahu, Hawaii. It's a volcano on the island of, again, of Oahu. And it has a name that is very interesting. It's called Diamond Head. Diamond Head, Oahu. Have you guys ever heard of it? Why is it called Diamond Head? Because when explorers came they started to notice something really shiny on that mountain. It wasn't because the shape of the mountain. It was because what they thought they saw on the mountain. So as they are approaching this mountain in Oahu, they are excited because they think that mountain is filled with diamonds. As they get closer to the mountain, they discover that it's not really diamonds at all. It's calcite rocks. Have you ever seen a calcite rock? It looks like a shiny or actually dirty, dusty diamond, but it's just a worthless rock. 
And that is true for many disciples or so-called disciples, so-called believers in Christ. That at a distance, they look like true believers. But after closer investigation, they're worthless rocks. This is a sad reality, but it is also a true theme throughout John chapter 6. Now, what is a false disciple? They are the ones who are waiting for Jesus when he returns the following day. And we're going to talk about that following day in a moment. Jesus puts himself on display. He feeds the multitude, but he also knows their heart. He knows that they don't want Jesus because they want a savior. They want Jesus because they want full stomachs. Jesus tells them in John 6, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to what he says to the multitudes. You are seeking me not because of the sign, but because you ate and you and your because you ate your fill of the loaves. Imagine Jesus saying that to the multitudes. Now, here's the question. You would think that Jesus would want to attract the multitudes, right? But as the multitudes come to him, they say, hey, Jesus, where were you? We were looking for you. And his response to them is this. You don't want me because you want me. You want food. (laughs) What does that do to the multitudes? They start to go away. Jesus is not in the business of trying to attract multitudes. He's in the business of weeding out the goats and the sheep. I know why you're here. I know what you're doing here. You don't care about me. You care about bread. I know what you want. You're here to to feed your selfish desires. In other words, you're here to worship yourself. You're here to worship yourself. When it's about you, then who did you come to worship? You. When you come to a service and say, I didn't get anything out of it. And we read from the scriptures. Then who did you make the whole service about? About you. Jesus describes false disciples as tares among the wheat in Matthew 13, 25. He calls them bad fish that are thrown away in Matthew 13, 48. He calls them goats that are condemned to eternal punishment in Matthew 25. And those left standing outside when the head of the house shuts the door. Luke 13, 25. They're false diamonds. They are apostates. They are those who will eventually leave the fellowship of true worshipers. 1 John 2, 19. They will manifest evil. They have unbelieving hearts because they will eventually abandon the church. But ultimately, they will abandon God. This is a false disciple. They, they continue to sin, willfully acknowledge truth that they've received, but turn from that knowledge as if they've never heard it. The Bible says for those people, it would have been better that you never heard it instead of adding more judgment on yourself by hearing truth and turning away from it. Let us take heed to these words. They think that they are on the way to heaven. The path that leads to God, but instead they are on the the broad path. The one that leads straight to hell. I spoke to a seven day Adventist young man yesterday, Sam, amongst five or four of his other friends. And we all had a great talk. Talked about the gospel, talked about predestination, talked about election, talked about depravity. The one thing that this young man could not accept was this. But God loves everyone. And there is no hell 
When you die, you just die. So I read to him the story of Lazarus, the poor beggar and the rich man. And he'd never seen that before. And he walked away saying, I've got the, I've got a lot to think about. Fifteen year old boy. In verses 16 through 21, though, we're going to look at a true disciple. We'll deal with the false disciples next week. And I want to tell you before we get into this passage that there are a few points that I could not overlook. And I pray that this completely makes sense to you, because as I was going through it, I could not move past verse 21. But I want to focus on a few points today, and that is going to be in the area of trials experienced by true disciples. Listen, and the ultimate reaction to those trials. Today, we're going to talk about trials that the believer experiences, the true believer and the ultimate reaction of true believers. So let's look at this passage and let's see the trials and the ultimate reaction of a true believer. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat and they were frightened. Now, here we go. The crowds are dispersed. There are no longer crowds around. They try to take Jesus and make him their king, but Jesus retreats. Matthew 14. As a matter of fact, if you want, you can flip over from Matthew 14 to John 6 because we're going to be in both passages. Matthew 14 is, is another one. Matthew 14, 22 tells us that Jesus dismissed the crowds while also seeing that the disciples go away. Now, he, pay attention to this, okay? Jesus tells the crowds to go away. He also tells his disciples, go away. Think now. Put yourself in the shoes of one of the disciples. 10 to 20,000 people have just tried to make your teacher the king. Your leader the one you follow every single day, they've just tried to make him the king. The guy that you've been following for at least a year now. And you are now one of the guys in his inner circle. They've just tried to make your teacher the king. All this time, Jesus has been teaching his disciples to pray that God's kingdom come. Amen. He's been teaching them to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, after 20,000 or so people have just been fed, they want to make Jesus their king. It seems like those prayers that they've been praying all this time are now coming to pass. But just when it looks like God is answering those prayers, what does Jesus do? He tells the disciples to leave and he says, and I'm leaving, too. Leave now you're about to become the king. This is what we wanted. Now, they didn't get what Jesus knew. All they know is kingdom come. Here's the king. We've been following him. That means we're one of the boys on the court. Right. We get to sit on one of those royal seats because he's the king. I'm one of his boys. We've been praying for the kingdom of come. Twenty thousand people said, let's have him be king. And you want us to leave? This is not a good game plan, Jesus. They didn't understand the dynamics of this moment, but Jesus did. He also understands this. What effect 
this whole scene, everything that they've done up until now is going to have on the minds of his disciples. He knows they're thinking what I just said. Now, I'm assuming that's what they think, what they're thinking, but it's a pretty good assumption, right? He knows what they're thinking. So he says, go away. They don't understand why, but nonetheless, they do. They leave. Mark chapter six tells us that initially they were supposed to head to Bethsaida, which was not far from the place. The miracle of this feeding of the multitude took place. Matthew 14 and Mark six imply that they had been planning on meeting Jesus before they cross the, the, the sea. But for some reason, Jesus didn't show up. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, this this timing, the timing. OK, so so start to picture in your mind the setting. Now, it refers to the evening and it refers to second evening or twilight. So the time period is going to be between 3 a.m. in the morning and 6 a.m. in the morning. This is when they're heading out in the boat. Now, they got in the boat at 9 a.m. The part that the Bible is speaking about right now is between three and six in the morning. They waited all night for Jesus to come. They waited until dark. Jesus never comes. So they get into the boat and they set off for Capernaum. Now, I want you to think about this setting again. Galilee, the sea that they're going into. It's 700 feet below sea level. That's low. And the mountains that rise around them rise to at least 2,000 feet. So when winds come, winds come up and they drop down into that sea and they cause great storms. They just happen to be randomly getting on the sea that day because Jesus sent them. Now, we know that there's nothing random, don't we? Jesus sends them on this sea. And the Bible tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John, verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. One of those strong winds that comes over the mountain and then drops down into the sea just happens to happen at the moment the disciples get on the sea to go and cross the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 14 tells us that the wind was so powerful that the waves began to beat against the boat. Matthew 14 tells us that the winds were so strongly that it strong that it took the boat a distance away from the shore. So they're not only being in this boat where, where a, a storm is taking place. And they're not only uh, and they're not a, a few feet off of the ocean shore. They're being pushed to the middle of the storm. Mark 6, six tells us. That they were blown so far from land that they were in the middle of the sea and they were straining the oars. Meaning this. Now, if you can get the picture, they're in this boat. It is wind blowing. Waves are crashing, beating against the boat. And they all have oars and they're trying to get where? Back to land. They're paddling with all their might to get out of the storm. The Bible tells us that in all of their work, they had only gone about three or four miles. These boys are working. Twelve men straining with all their might. Now, here's the question. Where is Jesus? Right. You got these guys that Jesus loves, the ones who are in the middle of a storm. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. Now, I want you to think closely. They go from thinking that they are going to have God's kingdom on earth. Jesus sending them away, and now they're in the middle of a storm. Where is he? 
During this storm, the disciples must have been wondering. They may have even been screaming out, where is he? He's the one that sent them away. He's the reason they got into this boat to begin with. Where is he? Did you ever ask that question? You're in the middle of a storm. And not just by the shore. You're not just feeling waves hit your knees. You are in the middle, the eye of a storm. And the question often arises, where is Jesus? Here's the question. Do you think that Jesus knew that they would be that there would be a storm when he sent them across the sea? Do you think he knew that there would be a storm? Your answer should be yes, of course he knew. Here's another question. So then did Jesus send them into a storm? Although it may be a hesitant answer, you're going to have to answer yes, because if he knew there was going to be a storm, then he was obviously sending them into the storm. Now, this is an interesting thought, but why? If he knew that he was they were going to be experiencing a storm, we knew that he's sending them into the storm. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus send the people that he loves into the storm? Why would Jesus send you into a storm? There's something that they did not fully understand about the feeding of the multitude. They saw the food multiplied. Jesus, in his wisdom, because he knows all men, knows that they also did not understand fully the meaning of that moment. Now think about this. All these people are fed. And Jesus knows all men. He knows what these multitude want, but he's also more concerned with what's going on in the minds of his disciples. And there's something about that sign, something about that miracle that they did not get that Jesus had to send them into the storm to understand. The storm was going to be used as a tutor that would lead them to a greater truth about who? About Christ. The storm was going to be used as a tutor, as a teacher to do what? To teach them something they did not get through the feeding of the multitude. What is that truth? That this is the son of God. That he's the one that they've been waiting for. That he is the Christ. He's the one that would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He's the one that was smitten by God and afflicted. He is the one that would be pierced for our transgressions. He is the one that would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would the chastisement of our peace be. And by his wounds we would be healed. The storm was going to lead them to a greater truth. And someone did say it a moment ago, faith. Faith in that. Faith in him. The truth is that when you are in the storm, he wants you to understand this and he wanted them to understand this. Your peace is not built upon the hope that you will not be in a storm. Your peace is not built upon the hope that you will not be in a storm. Think about that. Your peace is not built upon not being in a storm. Isn't that where most people find their peace? In the fact that they're not in a storm. And what's their hope? That because they name the name of Christ, that he will keep storms away. 
that there are no storms on the horizon. Therefore, I've got peace. Isn't that what most people think? Isn't that what most people hope? Lord, just keep trouble away from me. But what does Jesus do? What does he display for us? What does he show us in the way that he loves his disciples? Because he loves them. And those he loves, he sends them into storms. He doesn't keep storms away. He sends them into them. How does that work? You should read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Jesus is displaying to his disciples that in spite of the storm, you can have peace because your peace is built on Christ, not on not being in the storm. Why? Because that's where your joy rests. Your joy and your peace does not rest in the absence of storms. It rests in Christ even in the midst of storms. This joy and satisfaction, it's in Christ. It doesn't rest, your joy and satisfaction does not rest in how your boss is evaluating you right now. Your joy and your satisfaction does not rest on them noticing your good behavior. Your joy and your rest is in the perfect work of Christ. That through Christ, God united you and him so that you have peace with God. Therefore, there's your peace. Your joy and peace do not come in the success of relationships. Your joy and peace do not come in money in your wallet, gas in your car, food in your belly, or clothes on your back. Your joy and peace and rest are found in Christ alone. It is a dangerous thing to abandon Christ when something more pleasurable comes along. And then to find yourself in the middle of a storm and then cry out for Christ. No. What does he say in John 16, 33? In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Don't allow your peace to rest in the absence of storms. Rest that your peace is the one who has overcome the world. Rest in the truth that your peace is in the one who has overcome the world. Hebrews 12, 6 says, love this, hear this, feel the weight of this. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, we've all been disciplined, then you're illegitimate children and not sons of God. You don't spank kids that are not yours. Don't spank my son. And I won't spank yours. God disciplines. He sends into storms for discipline's sake. Those who are his. That's why the psalmist said, Lord, look at the wicked. They prosper while we suffer. They'll get there, God says. But in you, your mind and I'm working in you discipline. God is allowing the storm because he's working discipline in our lives. Now, 
Jesus sent his disciples into the storm because he's teaching them a valuable lesson. It is the same lesson that you are presently learning. What is that lesson? It is this. Faith in Christ, not faith in the absence of the storm. Now, he's teaching them, don't be like the crowds who trust in the circumstances of life. The crowd that he just left, they were all trusting in, we've got food. And what are they trusting in? The food. Not the one who gives the food. They want food. Instead, trust in the one who is sovereign over the circumstances of life. Don't place your faith in the circumstances of life. Place your faith in the one who is sovereign over the circumstances of life. It's a big difference. There's a big difference in saying we have money today. We have money today versus trusting God. God will provide for us even if we don't have all the money in the world. Matthew 14, 22 tells us immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, pay very close attention to this. Verse 23. Where's Jesus? Through all this, where is he? And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to do what? To pray. Where's Jesus? He's praying. At the time that they are about to enter the most terrifying moment up until that time of their lives, Jesus is on the mountain. And what is he doing? He's praying. Praying for what? Where did he send his disciples? Across the sea, yes. But before they would be across the sea, they would be entering a storm. What is he praying for? He's praying for the same thing that he prayed for Simon Peter in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 22. When Satan asked for Simon Peter by name, Jesus says... Satan asked for you. you imagine Jesus telling you, Arturo? Satan asked for you. Tony, Satan asked for you. Ray, hey. Jesus took at you and said, hey, Ray, Satan wants you. you imagine that? And his response after the fact is, but I'm praying for you. That your faith may not fail. And then he says this. Knowing what's going to happen even before it happens. And when you have recount, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. You're going to make it through. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your faith may not fail you. What is he doing right now? Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God elect, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Listen. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. When they were in the storm. Jesus was on the mountain praying for them. When you are in the storm. What is Jesus presently doing? What is his present day ministry? He lives to make intercession. For you. How does it make you feel to know that Jesus is right now at the, hand, the right hand of God. Praying for you. And he's praying the same thing that he prayed for his disciples and the same thing that he prayed for Simon Peter. That your faith may not fail you. I don't need to fill in the blank of what your storm is. You know what it is. And he's praying for you right now. 
that your faith may not fail you. And also he has put inside of you his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself to strengthen you through the storm. Isn't that encouraging to know? Jesus has not forgotten his disciples. He knew the distress. He sent them into it. And listen, he was in no rush to go and save them. They had rowed for three or four miles with all their might. You would think after the first row, okay, here he comes. But instead, three or four miles until what? I cannot do this anymore. So when you come to the end of yourself, here comes God. And he's never in a hurry. Listen, God doesn't, he doesn't need to be in a hurry. You don't have to be in a hurry when you're in control of everything. Right? They're not going to start without me because I'm the star of the show, God says. <laughs> Nothing happens until he says so. So the disciples go into the storm and then... Again, something I can't explain, something beyond me, something I wish I could explain. They're trying with all their might to get back to the shore. Waves are being beat against their boat. They're probably screaming and yelling at each other. We're going to die. And all of a sudden, verse 19, when they rode about three or four miles, then they saw Jesus. What's he doing? Coming near the boat and they were frightened. Can you imagine that? Isn't that just like him? To show up in a way that's going to freak you out. You're freaking out on, the, on this water. The powerful storm being beaten by the waves. Deeper into the storm. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water. And the Bible, does, the Bible says he's not only, he's, they see Jesus and he's coming near. So if you can imagine on a boat trying three or four miles and, and all you're getting is three or four miles. And all of a sudden, Jesus just... Just gliding right to you. Can you imagine? Well, here's the response. In, in Mark chapter 14 and 6, they, both, they all say, it's a ghost. And you would have said the same thing. Even if you don't believe in the Kakui, you would have believed in him, in him at that moment. It's a ghost. Jesus tells them, it is I. Do not be afraid. I think there's such a, something so encouraging even about that statement. We can pass over it. When we start to realize the, the moment of the storm. And Jesus comes in and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. The Bible tells us in, in Matthew uh, something else that happened. Matthew 14, 28. Peter responds, Lord, if that's you, command me to come onto the water to you. I don't know what Peter was thinking. I don't know why he would say something like that. I mean, if I'm in the middle of the storm, the last thing I want to do is jump on the water. But that is just the nature of Peter. He's a, a, an imbecile. Uh, no, he's. Um, what's the word? Not an imbecile. He's not an imbecile. He's. Uh, he's something. Anyways, verse 28. And Jesus responds to him, come on, come. And Peter got out of the boat, impulsive, not imbecile, impulsive, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Now Peter's walking on the water. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus walks on the water. Immediately, wind begins to stop. Storms begin to calm. And here's the other thing. The boat that was far from the shore, immediately the boat was at, was at the land to which they were going. The Bible says that. In verse 21, they took him gladly into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Can you imagine that? This rowboat turns into a speedboat all of a sudden. And they're at the land. Why? He's putting himself on this plate again. Can you imagine? He, he defies the water. He defies the wind. He defies the waves. He defies everything. And then they're at the shore. Why can you have peace through the storm? Because of all of that. Because your faith is not in the storm, it's in Christ. Because not only is Jesus praying for you through the storm, he's also with you through the storm. And that is encouraging. He's not going to abandon you through the storm. It's an important note that sometimes this, sometimes storms last a lot longer than just a night. I know it says weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Sometimes that's a couple of nights of weeping. Sometimes that's a season of weeping. Sometimes that's years of weeping. And I cannot control those storms. And you cannot control those storms. God is in control of those storms. And God is with you through those storms. Hold on to him. However long it takes. Don't let go. Even if you don't see change immediately and you're wondering, when is it going to happen? When are the winds going to die down? When are the waves going to stop beating against me? Don't, don't quit. Don't give up. He is with you through those. He knows you're there. It's not a surprise to him. And let this be more encouraging to you. He sent you into that storm. And what is the response of a true disciple? Matthew 14, 33 tells us those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. True disciples, they worship Christ. No small point in this story. That's how a true disciple responds to a storm. You give and take away. Still I will bless your name. These men were committed to worshiping God alone. And they knew. That to bow down. To worship anyone but God. Was the highest form of idolatry. And they would never do such a damning thing. But yet. Christ puts himself on display. And says you are worshiping correctly. I am the great I am. They fall down and they worship him. And this is the only appropriate response they can think of at that moment. Is to worship him. And what about you this morning? How will you respond? In the midst of your storm? And how about this? In the midst of the absence of storms. Because we know what we do. We know what to do in a storm. That's when there is no storm. That we forget to worship. Waves are calm. 
There is no beating of our boat. Things are good. It is in those moments that we begin to take off pieces of our armor and think we are no longer in wartime. And once we begin to expose ourselves, a little folding of the hands, a little sleep, a little slumber, the enemy will come in seeking, like the Bible says in Peter, seeking whom he may devour. Be on your guard. Live a life of worship. Don't wait for the storm to come before you cry out to him. This morning as we partake in the Lord's Supper, he has conquered sin, death, and the grave. And the fellowship that we experience with him today, let us not neglect that fellowship Throughout our week. The time of worship that we're going to experience now. Let that be a lifestyle to you. Because whether you are in them or out of them. Storms are going to come. They are a, a fact of life. And when they do. I pray that you are prepared. Because of your relationship with Christ. That your faith would not fail. Let's stand.